Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Redeemer's Fellowship. Our, our session tonight hopefully is going to be challenging and interesting and biblical and spirit-driven and hopefully helpful to each and every one of us in the room. My name is Billy Reeder. If you're a guest with us here, a special welcome to you. I serve as lead pastor of Redeemer's Fellowship. Our speaker this evening is Dr. A.J. Swoboda, who is a professor of theology at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. Any Bushnell grads here tonight? Okay, a few of you. All right. Good job. What's your mascot? I don't know your mascot. Do you have a mascot? Beacon. Okay. That's not a... Their their mascot is a ray of light. Uh, Awesome. Uh, For those of you who were here this morning uh, for church services... uh, we, uh, we had someone apparently in town hit a, a power pole. Uh, did anybody in here hit that pole? Was that you? Uh, I've been asking some people that I thought it might have been. And so the power went out for over a half hour, almost, almost a full hour. So we did not have the 11 o'clock service. And if you missed church then, uh, the service from 915 is recorded and it's on our YouTube channel right now. And then tomorrow, uh, by late afternoon, it will be on our website as well. So you can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com, uh, and then Redeemers Fellowship or uh, redeemers.org tomorrow to see that service so that you can catch up. The message was phenomenal uh, from Dr. AJ to, uh, this morning, and so you, you want to make sure you catch up on our, our study and act. So tonight, as we have been, though, we'll, we'll move to tonight, we have been... Uh, talking about in this series of lectures some of the most incendiary topics in our culture, uh, which are gender and identity and sexuality and the Bible. And tonight's lecture, we're really going to be doing, guys, a lot of theology. So if you've got a notebook, take out your notebooks, get your pens ready. Uh, get ready to take a lot of notes. So AJ is going to lecture for approximately 90 minutes uh, which has kind of been our format thus far in these lectures. And then the last 30 minutes or so, we will have questions and response time. So if you have a question, write it down. And then, and then when it comes time for the Q&R part, then uh, we hopefully will be able to get to a lot of questions and have, uh, and have AJ answer those. Uh, and if you are going to ask a question, make sure you have the microphone. We've got quite a few people in the room, guys. So we want to make sure the question is heard. So wait for the microphone before you do answer that uh, when, it, when it comes time for Q&R. Having said that, again, welcome, everyone. And I'm going to go ahead and bring up uh, Dr. A.J. Swoboda. Let's give him a big hand of appreciation. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you, friend. Thank you, friend. Blessings. No, Billy, just to be clear, you said I have an hour and a half to share, but I think you meant I have an hour to share with 30 minutes for Q&R. Is that correct? Oh, uh, sure. Because if you're giving me an hour and a half, I will take every minute of it. No, what we're going to do, so our childcare ends at 8 o'clock. Oh. So however you want to spend that time. Oh. And... Awesome. I'm the best. Awesome. I just went past awesome. and people more time. Awesome. Never happened. Okay. Can I start now? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, what a gift. Oh, so good to see you all. Um, yeah, so word of warning, you, you are going to need, um, it, it would be, I think, wise for you to have a Bible tonight. And I think as well, it would be wise for you to be able to take some notes. I suspect uh, some of what we're going to do this evening may provoke some good questions. And I'm, 
um, I'm aware that by the time we're finished tonight, you and I may need some time to talk out uh, some of the things that we're uh, going to address. I was told, interestingly enough, that this morning was one of the least um, attended services at Redeemer's you've had for a really long time. <laughs> um, it turns out when you cancel a service, that's what happens. But I'm looking at this room and um, I'm struck. I mean, this is the third of four that we're going to be doing. I'm struck at, uh, at, at the capacity in this room. I mean, just look around. Uh, look around the room and, and see who's here. Uh, what this should do for you uh, this evening is um, it should identify for you that what we are going to talk about tonight um, is something that there's probably nobody in this room that this does not impact and affect. Um, so this is real stuff. And I'm going to ask for your grace because the reality is um, it takes... Uh, so, kudos. Uh, it actually takes a lot of uh, courage to talk about this stuff publicly. And I, and I will tell you, uh, I lecture and teach all over the world. The topics that we're going to talk about tonight are the kinds of things that can keep me up at night. And there may be a moment that tonight I say something that needs some clarification. And I'm going to ask you that you give me intellectual hospitality. And what that means is if I say something that just sounded a little off, give me some space to clarify when we're done rather than canceling me. Are you, are you, are you with me? Okay. So I'm, I may make some mistakes tonight and that's okay. Um, so the way we've been going, let, let's outline where we've been going. Um, nearly, for those of you that were here, nearly six months ago, we had our first uh, conversation. And that whole first session, if you recall, six, seven months ago, was we did an in-depth reading of the first couple chapters of Genesis. Do you remember that conversation? Where we walked through Genesis 1 and 2 and then began to talk about Genesis 3 just a tad bit. And really the purpose of that first evening was to talk about God's um, really, the purpose of that first evening was to talk about how God invented sex, and that sex is God's idea, and that sex, unbeknownst to many Christians, is actually a beautiful and glorious thing that God invented. God does not make bad things. He only makes good and glorious things. And we talked about how God invented. God is the creator of sex. And if true, if God is the creator of sex then it behooves us to ask questions about how God intended it to be used. Because to use something somebody's been made in a way it was not intended to be used has the power of doing tremendous harm and damage. For anybody in the room that has been impacted or known somebody who's been sexually abused, who's experienced uh, unchosen sexual contact, uh, who has experienced rape, who has been molested, or um, anybody in this room would agree with this, that sex is powerful in such a degree that it can bring life and joy, and man can it destroy. It's a fire. And fire in the right context can bring life, can't it? But, but, but fire, when misused, really harms. That was our first talk. Our second talk was we talked about the biblical understanding of marriage. And I made the case that marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's design, God's uh, idea. And, and the basic idea that we laid out was that you can see throughout the Bible over and over and over again that marriage design, marriage as God's design between a man and a woman through covenant lifelong faithfulness is a, is a theme that plays itself over and over and over again. In fact, by the time we get to Genesis 4, 
which is the chapter after the fall, you all of a sudden seeing a guy named Lamech practicing marriage, but now he's married to women. It's interesting because the minute the humans are no longer in the Garden of Eden, they continue to practice God's ideals, marriage, but they begin to practice God's ideals in their own way. So tonight, of the three that we're going to have, tonight is the densest conversation. Because up to this point, it's all been light and fluffy. (laughs) This evening, we are going to have a conversation about same-sex sexuality. And I'm going to invite you to reflect with me for a few moments on what Scripture has to say to us. For a moment, if I could, could you get your Bibles out and find your way to Amos chapter 2? I should be able to show my screen here in... Just a moment. Amos chapter two, you got, give me some power back there, folks. Almost, there we go, there we go. Amos chapter two. I have to begin with this. I have to begin with an obscure minor Hebrew prophet. I have to begin with this. This is an odd way to begin a conversation about sexuality, but you'll see in just a moment exactly where we're going. I have a friend, by the way, I have a friend, a very close friend, who is 100 convinced, he's a, he's a funky fellow, but he is 100% convinced that Bigfoot is real. Now, by the way, I don't know if I disagree. I've had some odd experiences out in the wilderness that I can't explain. I may or may not believe in Bigfoot myself. In fact, my opinion in this matter doesn't matter. I'm just going to use my friend as the... As the but I have, I have a friend that believes in Bigfoot. And I, I think, actually, that's a really interesting theological conversation. What does the Bible have to say about Bigfoot? And you go, the Bible doesn't say anything. And I actually think the Bible might have something to say about it. Um, I have a friend um, who, is, who is 100% convinced, 100% convinced, uh, that the vaccine, um, over the course of the last few years, that the vaccine was largely uh, an attempt at the federal government to um, control uh, the American public, and he is convinced that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I have a friend. These are real people, by the way. Not the same person. (laughs) I have a friend who is 100% convinced that God has given us herbs of the field so that we can smoke marijuana. When I was in Portland, uh, I had a very interesting conversation with a couple who came to me who told me that they believed that polyamory of three people, of, of a thruple, as it's been called, that it is God's design And not only God's design, but it's actually an orientation that people are born based on, of all things, based on the Trinity. Now, I say say these. I started with Bigfoot, and it got more and more intense as each illustration went on. When you are a pastor or a leader, and you're sitting down with individuals with these sorts of conversations... How do you respond? I mean, the the reality is, right, 
what we're really talking about here, when I'm sitting with each one of these individuals, and, 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 and these, these issues are provoked, these issues are brought up, the immediate response is, how did you arrive at that conclusion? How did you get there? How did you get to the point where you believed that unquestionably Bigfoot existed? How did you arrive to the idea that a vaccine is the mark of the beast? How did you arrive at the idea that marijuana is God's design? How did you arrive at the idea that a thruple is God's intent? What you, little did you know, little did you know, you in five minutes just got thrown into a graduate level course on something we call theological methodology. And you go, talk about something that makes God sound boring. Theological methodology? What in the world is that? You know what it is? It's this. Theological method is how you, as a Christian, arrive at what is true or not. How do you get there? How do we arrive at the idea of knowing what is good and glorious versus what is not good and dark? How do we know? How do we arrive? It's a important question. When I am sitting and having a conversation about sexuality with one of my students, for example, would you believe me if I told you that actually the conversation we're having has absolutely nothing to do with sexuality? At the end of the day, it is a conversation about who gets to say what is true. And the reality is, what we're talking about when we're talking about sexuality is we are not talking about orgasms. We are not talking about threesomes. We are not talking about body parts. More than anything else, yes, that's tangential. It's part of the conversation. But at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is who gets to determine what is true. Are you with me? Now, now, now G- Jesus, right, had some things to say about this. He had some very, very important things to say. For example, Jesus made a claim. He said that the, the words of God in Scripture, the words of God in Scripture will never dissolve. They will never go away. Generations will come and go, but what God has said will remain true. Even Jesus made a claim and said something like this. He said, that those who love me do what I command. Do you remember Jesus saying that in the Gospel of John? And what Jesus is getting at there is he's saying, you love God not merely by your affections. You don't merely love God because you read your Bible enough. You don't merely love God because you sign a petition or because, how do you love God? You love God because you choose to let what he says be the normative way that you live your life. Because at the end of the day, friends, here's the deal. If as Christians, I'm not going to do the whole slippery slope thing. But if as Christians, if what God has said is not what shapes what we believe and what we do, then we are damned to recreate Christianity every generation based on what we feel. And at the end of the day, That little 16-year-old kid of mine who was sitting in his room about to kill himself, who experienced Jesus while reading the Gospel of Matthew, I want to guard that story because Jesus saved my life. 
and who Jesus is and what scripture says are worth being guarded. We do not merely love God because we have affections for God. We love God because we believe what he says is like so much better than what we say. Amos 2. Look at this. Here's the problem with what I just said. (laughs) If what I just said is true, and God is always the one that's right, then we are always the ones that are wrong. Amos 2. This is the prophet, a minor Hebrew prophet to the northern kingdom. Amos is a fiery preacher. By the way, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. He lived in rural, just outside of rural Jerusalem. He spent his life raising sheep. He was a shepherd. And he comes to Jerusalem with this, he comes to Israel with this, this set of rebukes. Because for the prophet, he sees in God's people stuff that God's people should never be doing. Listen to this. He says this, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and needy and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. I want you to read those two verses right there. What is, what is going on here? What is Amos screaming at the top of his lungs about? Amos is talking about what you and, call, you and I call injustice. Slavery. Economic injustice. What you see going on here is he's saying, look at the the language is so clear. They are selling people for silver. They're selling the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as dust on the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Let me ask you, church. Some of you are going to feel very uncomfortable with responding to this question. Based on this text, do you think God cares about economic justice? Based on Amos, do you think God cares about justice? I need a little louder of a response. Based on Amos's words here, do you think God cares about the poor? Do you think God cares about a community of people that care about the poor? Do you think God thinks injustice is evil and wrong? If you are a conservative... It is uncomfortable to say these things because you have been trained as a Christian in our world to believe that the partisan paradigm means one side of the party thinks one way and the other sees the other. When you read this stuff, I had somebody say to me, when I read Amos 2, this guy sounds like a flaming progressive. It is all about justice. And I just heard a bunch of conservatives say, Jesus, God cares about this stuff. Look at this. The first section is about justice. Do I get to pick whether God believes in justice or not? Do I get to self-select whether I think God cares about the poor? Do I get to sit down and say, you know, this just doesn't fit with my conservative values. Everybody should pull themselves up by the bootstraps and live their life. Do I get to say that I am right and Amos is wrong? Who's right, him or me? God is right. You are wrong. Always. 
Look at this. The next verse. Father and son use the same girl. And they profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God, and they drink wine taken as fire, as fines. Look at this line right here. Father and son use the same girl. What is going on here? This is called incest. This is called polygamy. This is called polyamory. This is called, you and I have a word for this. It's called sexual immorality. And the result of sexual immorality is that God's name is profaned. They lie down beside every altar on the garments. God right here is saying sexual immorality is not okay. Based on this text, does God care about our sexual integrity? Based on this text, regardless of you being a progressive or a conservative, is God right or are we right? God is right. I want you to see this, that in one section, you are, as a person who loves God, simultaneously called to fight for justice and care for the poor and be people that stand against sexual immorality in your own lives. And to say that God's design for sexuality is better than ours. If you are a progressive or a conservative politically, half of you is probably offended by this. Because we have been taught, please hear me, we have been taught to believe that the kingdom of God, that one side of the church gets one side and the other side gets the other side. And I want to say here, I am not a conservative. I am not a progressive. I am a Christian. And as a Christian, I don't get to pick which parts of God's revelation I like or don't like. That if I'm going to stand against sexual immorality in my own life, I also am called to care for the poor. And if you are somebody that cares about justice in this world, and you run an awesome nonprofit in our city, you are also called to care about sexual immorality. You don't get to pick. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tonight as we talk about same-sex sexuality, would we put aside our labels and not be a group of conservatives and Republicans or progressives and Democrats, and for a few moments, would we be Christians? And listen, God, to what you have to say, not what our partisan politics tells us to believe. Please help us tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. The title of my talk tonight is super interesting. (laughs) Same-sex sexuality, scripture, ethics, and homosexuality. What I want to do in the next uh, little chunk of time is I want to walk through what scripture, what God has to say about same-sex sexuality. You're going to notice, I'm going to say the phrase same-sex sexuality a lot. And I'm going to say that a lot because we need to distinguish the difference between same-sex sexuality and same-sex relationships. 
The reality is I am in many same-sex relationships. My best friend Trevor is of the same sex. We are friends. A same-sex relationship is two people of the same sex who have a kind relationship, a friendly relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. God calls all of you to have relationships and friendships and life-giving, sustaining relationships with people of your same sex. That is exactly what God designs. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sex, specifically same-sex sexuality. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay. And I want to begin um, with actually a quote. Um, This is, uh, by the way, I've spent a good part of 15 years studying this stuff. And I got to tell you, no matter how many many times you cut cut at this, uh, there's no perfect way to, 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 to cover this topic. Um, but I, I love starting with this quote. Um, this is a quote from Walter Wink. Um, some of you may have heard of Walter Wink. Walter Wink is a, is, a new, is a New Testament scholar. He wrote a really famous book back in the 1970s, 1980s called The Powers That Be. And he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a scholar who studies the way the New Testament describes the powers. Do you, you remember when Paul talks about the powers, right? Walter Wink says this. Uh, He wrote a book on same-sex sexuality, and he said this. He said, the Bible clearly takes a negative view of same-sex sexual relations. That's an interesting interesting quote to begin with. You're like, wow, you didn't do any building up. You just sort of started, laid it all out there, didn't you? I like to start with this quote for one really important reason. Walter Wink is one of the most progressive New Testament scholars out there who is writing on sexuality. Um, uh, uh, Walter Wink would be what you, would, you and I would say is an affirming Christian, which would mean he would say, uh, personally, he would say that same-sex sexual relationships are okay and that God has ordained them for human, uh, for human uh, social relationships. In his book on the New Testament and sexuality, Walter Wink flatly says, even as a progressive scholar, that the Bible takes a negative view of same-sex sexual relationships. He is perhaps one of the most progressive scholars on this topic. And I begin with this simply as a way of saying this. The question of what scripture has to say about same-sex sexuality is actually not that debated. In fact, largely, I would say 80 to 90% of scholars who study this stuff would say unquestionably, the Bible offers a very strong critique of same-sex sexual relationships. By the way, I need to say something. All of us, oh my gosh, I was going to say this and I didn't say it. Okay. I want to say this. For the person in the room who comes at this conversation and you come with a more progressive perspective towards this, I need you to know, I may say some things tonight that bother you, but I want you to know that you matter to me. And you have an opportunity to, during the Q&R to totally shred me apart. And I welcome that. This is not just a one-way conversation. So I want you to know I see you. I also want to say, if you come at this from a conservative perspective, I'm going to say some things tonight that you don't want to hear. And the reality is, while I'm wholeheartedly convinced that Walter Wink is right, I think the church has done a really good job in the last 2,000 years of really, really doing harm to gay and lesbian people. And it's not been more often than not in our theology. It's been in our gracelessness, our unwillingness to listen, and our unwillingness to befriend people walking through the crucible of their life. For the person in this room who wrestles with same-sex attraction, 
I need you to know that you have a very, 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 very good friend on the stage tonight who has spent his entire life wrestling with the same issue. And I'm married to a woman and I love her with all my heart. But I do not come to this as some obscure man who does not have a vested interest in these conversations. When I read this, I want to say I actually really celebrate the fact Walter Wing says this because it's integrous. When you read scripture through and through and through, you are going to find time and again that it's really difficult to find texts in scripture that speak affirmatively of something that goes contrary what God's design for marriage was, which was a, 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 a relational context, a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And I, I want to flesh that out a little bit because at the end of the day, there's, there's going to be a lot of arguments there, are going to, there would be a lot of arguments that would say that what Christians have taught for 2,000 years, and by the way, Christians have been teaching this for 2,000 years. This is not new. And by the way, the global church has been teaching it across denominational lines. People of color, white people, Europe, South Asia, you name it. That this has been a tradition for 2,000 years that is not new. It's, it's not novel. This is something Christians have believed for a long time. And that is the idea that God has created sex to be between a man and a woman in covenant faithfulness, marriage. And that anything outside of that violates something of the heart of God for sexuality. So how do we get there? And we started with methodology. How do we get there? The reality is that there would be some who would argue, okay, that the Bible, yes, the Bible may condemn same-sex sexuality or has stuff to say about it, but some would say that the Bible, what the Bible condemns or what God speaks uh, truthfully about is different from what you and I in our culture would call consensual same-sex marriage and sexuality. The basic idea being something like this, that yes, the Bible does no question, uh, speak critically of same-sex sexuality, but it's not talking about what we have in American culture of, of same-sex marriages or consensual marriages between consenting adults. And so there would be somebody who would say like, okay, yes, the Bible critiques something, but it's not talking about what our culture has going on right here. And, and I want to I actually begin by looking at a little history. And I want to ask, is that actually true? Is the Bible actually addressing what is going on at our moment in time, or is it addressing something very differently? I want to do a little history, a little history, a little history. I warned you, we're going to get deep. I warned you. Let's talk about same-sex sexuality. I mean, it actually turns out, truth be told, it turns out that actually at the time of the New Testament, the writing of the early church, the, the new church's conception, that in the early church, same-sex sexuality was actually fairly common practice in the Roman world. Uh, one, of my, one, of my, uh, uh, one of my favorite scholars on this topic, he makes a comment that what you and I see going on in America is nothing compared to what Rome did. That ancient Rome in the first century in which the early church was formed and the, the New Testament writings were, uh, were, put in, 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 uh, were put into motion, that in that ancient world, in that ancient world, the context in which the early church exists in ancient Rome was an exceptionally libertine culture that makes... Las Vegas looked like a preschool. Wildly, wildly sexual culture. Sexualized beyond all get out. In fact, interestingly enough, the ancient city of Corinth that Paul wrote the letter, uh, his two letters to Corinth, he actually wrote like seven of them. We only have two. That there was actually a Greek verb, Corinthesasestai, which was the Greek verb for to be sexually libertine. 
And the idea was that this city was just known for being the place that you would go to have a great time. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It actually turns out that in the ancient Roman world, same-sex sexuality was actually practiced widely. Uh, let me give you some examples of the kinds of stuff that we're talking about. For example, we know that in ancient, uh, ancient, uh, in the ancient uh, Roman culture, ancient Near East, that there was actually a practice called pederasty. Uh, pederasty is essentially this uh, practice of an older man taking on, again, this is very difficult stuff to talk about, but of an older man who would take on essentially a younger male slave as essentially a, a, another, a, 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 another relationship for sexual pleasure and enjoyment. It was actually very common. Pederasty was very common in the ancient world, and, and rich, specifically richer, older men um, very commonly had, pet, had uh, younger relationships uh, called pederasty. Um, we know that there was, uh, in these power dynamics, an active partner and a passive partner, the one who had the lower cultural standing and the one who had the higher cultural standing, so the one who was in power and the one that was not. Much of the Roman world was this kind of sexuality, and that is sex as a power play. There would be some who would make the case that when Paul writes about same-sex sexuality in the book of Romans, that that is the kind of stuff that he's talking about. That what Paul is really critiquing is he is critiquing power dynamics of people that are misusing sex for essentially pleasure, for power. They are misusing it in these pederasty-type relationships. And so some would say, yes, Paul is critiquing same-sex sexuality, but he's doing it against this. Are you following me? There's, only a, there's, there's, there's some problems with that. And, and one, of, one of the big problems with that is, is this. It actually turns out in the first century when Paul is writing letters like Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy in which Paul addresses same-sex sexuality, same-sex marriage was actually commonly practiced in Rome. For example, this is a picture of Nero and Sporus. I should say it's a statue of Nero and Sporus from the third century, uh, two men that were married. So Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, uh, was in a same-sex sexual relationship, a marriage. Uh, Agathon and Pausinius in the third century, two men, uh, famous uh, philosophers who were known to be married. We actually have evidence of women that were married as well, Barakini and Mesopotamia in the third century, two women that were in a same-sex uh, same marriage. I bring this up to say that actually evidence seems to suggest that a lot of the same-sex activity that was taking place in the first century was not power dynamics. It was consensual adult sexual relationships between two people of the same sex. Here's why this is important. It's important because it actually seems to suggest that perhaps Paul was addressing this kind of stuff. That Paul was not necessarily only confronting pederasty, which by the way, he was, but that Paul was also addressing what had become normative same-sex sexual marriages in Roman culture. Are you with me? Are you following me? Okay. This is very common, very common. We actually have in the first century a number of Christians who are writing about this very phenomenon. For example, in the first century, Clement of Alexandria writes this. He says, women behave like men in that women, contrary to nature, are given in marriage and marry other women. First century. Ptolemy of Alexandria mentions women who take other women as their, as their lawful wives. Lucian of Samosota makes a comment about uh, this marriage between uh, two women. Josephus, the, the, the famous uh, Jewish uh, historian, uh, what, are, what are our laws about marriage? The laws owns no other mixture of sexes but that which is according to nature. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. 
Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. I'm trying to get you to see that when the New Testament was written, it was written in an ancient world where same-sex sexuality was common, it was practiced, and it was everyday. if, if, If that doesn't make sense, moving forward is going to get worse and worse and worse for you. Okay? I can't tell you how many times I have had somebody make the case that the Bible was, is not critiquing consensual adult same-sex marriages and will say it is, a, it is attempting to critique power dynamics. And I want to say it's not just critiquing one, it's critiquing both. Okay. So at, at the end of the day, yes, yes, in the Roman Empire, yes, sex was a power move. In fact, we know this that Roman soldiers were allowed, based on their own desires, were allowed to take on other women for their own sexual pleasures, despite their wives' permissions or not. In fact, do you remember that moment in Ephesians when Paul says, husbands must love their wives? Do you remember that line? You know why that's so significant? Is in the Roman Empire, you were not responsible to have to love your wife because you had a number of other wives. And what is Paul doing? He's actually saying, just as the wife loves the husband, men, you better love your wives. And you do not get to do what the Romans get to do. Paul is critiquing the men and saying, don't you dare use sex as a power play. In the ancient world, by the way, the earliest Christians were known for people who refused to do what everybody else did. I'll give you two examples. One example is we have a letter written by a pagan who's talking about how the earliest Christians were these weird people in the first century. They were these weird people who were really hospitable and shared their money, but they wouldn't share their wives. And he he makes a comment. He says, these weird Christians, these weird Christians, they're so willing to share their goods, but they're so unwilling to share their wives. They were known for this. Here's another example. Romans had a practice of essentially uh, being able to say to uh, uh, virgin women, being able to say to them, we now, I now get to have you because, because I live in a, in a world where men rule. We have a whole category of martyrs, of young Christian women who refused to give their bodies to the Roman soldiers. You know what they were called? They were called the virgin martyrs. They refused to give their bodies to Rome because their bodies were God's body. Here's what I'm trying to see. I want you to see that the earliest Christians would have looked so stinking weird. They would not have looked like anybody else. You would have gone into their communities and you would have been like, you guys don't do polyamory? You guys don't do same-sex? You guys, you guys don't take extra wives? You don't have sex slaves? Who are these weirdos? And this minority prophetic community in the ancient world decided to say that Rome didn't get to control the narrative. God did. Because sex was God's design and God's invention. It actually turns out that, that there are only, this is, this, some of you maybe hate this, there's actually only six direct texts in Scripture that speak to the issue of same-sex sexuality. There are only six texts that directly speak to this issue. It, when I say by meaning of reference to two people of the same sex having sex, unfortunately, these have often been called clobber verses. 
which basically means that they have often been weaponized to make people feel ashamed and feel horrible. And I will admit, I have seen these verses and these texts be misused many, many times. But there are six very important texts that deal with this issue. We need to talk about them. For example, you have Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis chapter 19, you have this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these angels go in where Lot is in Sodom. And and they go in, these angels come in. And the men in Sodom want the angels to come out so that, we're told, so that they can have sex with them. You and I have probably heard the word sodomite before. That's actually where we get our term sodomite from, as it comes from that story in the book of Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we read the story, uh, many people would say, well, this is a clearly a text about same-sex sexual relationships. And it has been used really more often than not as kind of a, a tool, as a way of, of, of saying that, you know, th- this city was just so depraved and, 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 and it was, Sodom was very. But I got to be honest, more often than not, when you see Sodom referenced in the Bible, it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has to do with inhospitality. This is actually a comment in Ezekiel chapter 16 where the prophet is actually reflecting back on Sodom, and he says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Have, as you have seen. I would contend that actually the story in Genesis 19 has less to do with sexuality, and it has more to do with inhospitality of not caring for the poor. Here's why this is important. If you're going to go to texts about how to address same-sex sexuality, I think Genesis 19 is a really bad place to start. Because ultimately, it is not about same-sex sexuality as much as it's about gang rape. And that issue, yes, that de- it deals with that. But more than anything, I don't think it has to do address that particular issue in the way that we want it to. But still, that's one. you got to deal with Leviticus 18 and 19. How are we doing? Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. I'm talking to myself. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. How are we doing? We doing okay? Okay. Okay. No. Okay. I'll do, I'm doing my best. Leviticus 18 and 19. Uh, this is at the heart of Torah. These are, this is a set of commandments that comes to us from uh, that time when Israel is at Mount Sinai. Leviticus 18 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Same uh, chapter, at least two chapters later. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, and they are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So here's a question about these texts. One question is, do these texts still matter today? Okay. So if they do then I'd be curious to know how you deal with similar commands in this section that command you to not wear polyester or that forbid you from eating shrimp or pork. And I'm just going to point out that many Christians, if I'm candid, are very selective. A bunch of shrimp-eating, polyester-wearing Christians (laughs) who would go to this text and say, clearly this text critiques same-sex sexuality. Well, I'd be curious to know, how do, you, how do you arrive at that being yes? At these being yes, but the other ones being no. It's actually a very important question. How do you arrive at it? And, and actually, what we're talking about here, let me point out something. Sorry, I got to say something here. I was recently driving down one of the major cities, and I saw a signpost of a Christian holding up a signpost that says, gay people are detestable. 
And I want to say, in the name of Jesus, what a lie. Notice the text. That is detestable. That is detestable. What is detestable, the person or the activity? The activity. If you see somebody holding a sign up that calls anybody detestable, you send them to me. You say, that is absolutely not true. Gay and lesbian people matter so much to God. He loves and he cares. The person is not detestable. But God is willing to say that activity is. He is. But it raises a question. Is this about rape, coercion, cultic practices, pederasty? What is it about? And unfortunately, the text doesn't describe it at all. It just says all of it. All of it is detestable. All of it is detestable. But it still doesn't answer the question. Okay, well, what about the whole thing? What about the whole thing about the shrimp? Because this matters to me. I, I, need, I, need, I, need, I need to deal with this. I, if I'm a Christian and I'm going to take Leviticus 18 and 20 really seriously, I've got to think through how I know what is applied and what is not. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, are you allowed to eat bacon? Yeah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Everybody in the room just got saved. If you are a Christian, you should be eating bacon every day. Paul, even but Prince, Peter was commanded to get up and eat and kill. Bacon is a requirement. It is, it is committed. You are committed to higher amounts of bacon. How do we know? How do we know what from the Old Testament we are still bound by? How do we know? How do we know? Absolutely critical question to ask. And, and I would suggest to you that there are four main reasons why it's important that we see Exodus 18, Leviticus 18 and 20 about this commitment against same-sex relationships, marriage, uh, same-sex sexuality, that we actually see this as, as something that is continued, and yet we can still eat bacon. And here's why. Number one, I want you to see that throughout all of Jewish culture, and I would say all Christian culture up until the 1970s, same-sex sexual relationships were always forbidden. This would have been assumed to be, have been a commandment that said any same-sex sexual activity is outside the boundaries of God's design. It would have been known and assumed as such. The earliest Christians adopted this perspective. Secondly, it actually turns out that Jesus quotes Leviticus 18 through 20. Do you remember when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? Classic Jesus, he gives two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what does he quote? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus actually quotes Leviticus 18. Here's why this is important. As a Christian, this is how you know what from the Old Testament you are still bound by. It's really simple. Whatever Jesus retweets. <laughs> Sticks. Did Jesus ever retweet the bacon commandment? No. Praise the Lord. Did Jesus ever pass along the shrimp commitment? No. Jesus probably wore polyester. We don't know, but he certainly never retweeted it. Here's how you know as a Christian what you are bound by by the Old Testament. Whatever Jesus said, you are bound by. You actually end up reading the Old Testament through Jesus. Jesus becomes the way you read the Old Testament. 
And so because Jesus, when he quotes Leviticus 18 and 20, for us as Bible people, that's really important because it makes it clear that at least part of Leviticus 18 and 20 is bound by the new covenant people. He is going out of his way to say, at least this section right here, you've got to remember, this section, aspects of this section continue to be paramount for the followers of Jesus. And it turns out that many of the commandments from Leviticus 18 and 20 are repeated in the New Testament. And it turns out that the commandment against same-sex sex is one of those commandments. It turns out that when Jesus taught on the issue, this is, a, this is a big debate. Did Jesus ever talk about same-sex sexuality? If you were to spend your time only on Twitter, you would think no. Because it has popularly been said that Jesus was silent on the issue. And I got to tell you, if, if you would say that Jesus was silent on the topic of same-sex sexuality, I, I implore you, you, you just haven't read Jesus yet. B- because Jesus actually was loud and clear about this issue. How do I know that? How can I make that case? When Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, look at this. He says, all evil comes from the heart, including, what does he say here? Sexual immorality. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to write down the word porneia, which I put in an awkward colored orange right there. Porneia. The word that is used in the Greek text is the word porneia. And the word porneia uh, is a catch-all word that would have meant in the first century any sexual relationships outside the context of biblical marriage. Do you see now why it was important that we began with the whole lecture on marriage? Because how does God, how is marriage defined in Genesis 1 and 2? It is defined as a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. It is defined in those terms. In the first century, the word porneia would have been a clear signal to anybody of anything outside that marriage. You know what that includes? It includes rape. It includes molestation. It includes pornography. It includes abuse. So it's interesting that I'm going to bet the progressives in the room are feeling uncomfortable because this has always been applied only to same-sex sexual relationship. But I want to tell you, if you're progressive and you care about women's bodies, you're going to love Jesus. Because Jesus is standing up and fighting for women whose bodies had been abused and used in the first century. But we don't get to pick what aspect of pornea we're going to be behind. Jesus here, look at what he says. All pornea. Where does it come from? Out of, out of the evil of the heart. He calls it evil. This would have widespread been understood to, to, to have meant exactly the kinds of things that we're talking about. Jesus was not silent. He was loud. Another really important text, so we're walking through these Romans, Jesus, of course, talks about pornea, sexual immorality in the Gospels. Another key text is in Romans chapter 1. In fact, Romans 1, let me read it to you just real quick so you can see it for yourself. In Romans 1, Paul is talking about idolatry. He's talking about idolatry. 
And he's speaking about how human beings give their hearts to other gods, give their, uh, give their hearts to other uh, beings, they give their hearts to other things. And he says this, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against he- from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth with their wickedness. Since what may be known about God's, God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being, being understood by what's been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Even although they became wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. By the way, really interesting. Do you see this? Humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. If you take that line and you go back to Genesis 1, it is creation in reverse. And what he's saying here is he's saying that when humans worship another God, creation goes to chaos. And this is what chaos looks like. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, pornea, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I need you to see a couple things here. The first thing is don't you dare first go to the sexuality part because this text is not primarily about sexuality. It is about idolatry. And for Paul, he is making a case that all of us on some level are idolaters. That we all have things that we worship other than God. He is laying the gauntlet down for all of us, not just a few people. I need you to see that because all of us worship something other than God from time to time. But he does say that a world that is given over to idolatry is a world in which God's design for creation becomes chaos. It is not that the sexual relationships is the primary issue. The primary issue is the idolatry. This is why when I'm sitting with one of my students who's wrestling with their same-sex attraction, or they're in a same-sex sexual relationship, my first conversation with them has nothing to do with sexuality. It has to do with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, I would rather have somebody begin by returning their hearts to Jesus over anything else. But it's pretty darn clear. Um, You remember at the very beginning, we talked about how some people would say, well, the Bible is critiquing same-sex sexuality, but it's talking about power dynamics of one person over another person. And and someone could say, well, the Bible's not critiquing consensual same-sex sexual relationships. The only problem with that is the text. Because look at this, two times Paul says what? They are inflamed with lust for? Is this mutual or is it one way? This is mutual. And he says it two times. He says with one another, and he says that uh, 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 abandon natural relations with women, lust one another, and you should, uh, men with men, and he says the same, uh, the same phrase, one another. Why this is important is it, it's, it's pretty darn abundantly clear from the, from, the, from the text that Paul is talking about a mutual, chosen, same-sex sexual relationship. I think it's pretty darn clear. So the, the, the issue, he, I mean, he, he's, again, he, he, for Paul, he, he, is, he is saying that when, when human hearts are turned away from God, creation is undone. It turns to chaos. And the things that were meant to be certain ways are perverted and turned towards darkness. 
Paul, two other times in his letters, 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, makes similar comments, and he talks about what he calls the arsenokoites, which is men who sleep with men. Uh, And he talks there about um, uh, what some translations erroneously call homosexuality. Homosexuality is a bad translation of that word because the idea of homosexuality is actually a relatively new concept that goes back to the 1960s. Paul is not talking about some person's innate essence. He is talking about activity. So he is talking about uh, the activity of two people having sex. And of course, Paul uses the word sexual immorality there. Uh, There's actually a New Testament scholar named Thomas Schmidt who says, if you were to look at every single instance of sexual immorality in the Bible, it is in every occasion a breakdown of God's design for marriage. I want you to imagine a world... I want you to imagine a world in which there are no, there's no sexual abuse. Imagine a world where sex is never weaponized. Imagine a world where children do not look at pornography on now average for the first time at the age of seven. I want you to imagine a world where nobody was have to make a decision about an abortion. I want you to imagine a world where women's bodies were treated as sacred and good. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like heaven. But there would be some who would say, man, you are so stuck in the second century. If that is me being stuck in the second century, I'm fine with it. Because when you've walked with people who have experienced the weaponized sexuality, thank God 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 is clear about this stuff. These texts, uh, Lewis Crompton uh, wrote an incredible book called Homosexuality and Civilization, says this. Uh, One of the most Uh, respected scholars on this topic. Nowhere, period. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer for this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that same-sex sexual activity might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. Those are pretty darn clear words. And so I go back to the quote that I began with. I want to give Walter Wink a lot of credit here because Wink, as a very progressive scholar, would say that the Bible, the Bible does critique same-sex sexual relationships. It takes integrity to say what the Bible actually says, but it's, it's another step to disagree with that. And Wink would say, even though the Bible says this, it also says that women should cover their homes in the church service. And because of that, we are no longer bound to it. I appreciate Wink for his truthfulness. I wildly disagree with his application. Okay. So how do we deal with this? Um, There are basically two approaches. And in the history, really, of the last 50 years, there have been two ways that Christians have dealt with these texts. Um, you know, how do we apply this stuff? How do we do it? For the person in the room who wrestles with same-sex attraction, what does this mean for you? For the person in the room who's in a same-sex marriage, what does it mean for you? For those of you who have parents who have come out or kids that have come out, what does this mean for you? It, it, this is heavy stuff. It's heavy because we're talking about, on one hand, what, what God has been very clear about, and we're simultaneously talking about our kids and grandkids. Do you feel the tension there? Do you feel the pain? I've probably, in the last 10 years, I've probably had 30 people come out of the closet to me because I've been willing to share my story publicly about what I've wrestled with. And I gotta tell you, every single time I have somebody sit in my office and talk to me about their experiences of waking up one day when they were 13 years old in a body that they didn't really want, 
and wrestling with the, the, the way their body looks and their desires and not knowing what to do. How do, we, how do we approach this stuff? In general, there have been, in the last, I would say, 50 years, there have been basically two approaches to handle, handling these texts. On one hand, which would be the, the approach that I would take, on one hand is what is called the historically Christian perspective or the historic Christian uh, trajectory. And, and this perspective would say something like this. It would say scripture was right, Paul, Jesus, the Old Testament are right, and that we are called to hold faithfully to what God has said and not bend on the topic. That would be my perspective. But there would be another perspective that we could call the revisionist perspective or what has commonly been called the affirming perspective. And, and this perspective would say, yes, Scripture says what it says, but we apply it the same way we, we might apply, for example, head coverings or, or the bacon issue or these sorts of issues. And I want to tell you, I want to be upfront with you about this. Some of my dearest friends used to be in the historic Christian perspective and are now in the affirming perspective. And it has made for some really painful conversations of walking through these nuanced and challenging and painful conversations graciously and humbly and not being a jerk about it and not beating each other up. But I do, I, do, I, I would impress upon you, church, the importance the importance of holding to the first perspective. But I, but I want to do so by, by actually, <laughs> I, I want to do so by addressing some of the things that the affirming perspective would say. And I want to do it graciously and humbly. I do not want to do it arrogantly. So th- there would be some, what, the affirming perspective. Let, let's talk about what the affirming perspective would say. So the affirming perspective would say something like this. Yes, we have these texts. Yes, we have these texts. They're there. We don't get to deny those texts. They're in the same Bible that Christians have been reading for 2,000 years. But an affirming, from the affirming perspective, the, the idea would be, well, Scripture condemns non-consensual same-sex relationships. It's not condemning the kinds of same-sex relationships that we see in our culture today. And on one level, I see that perspective. I understand what that is saying. So the affirming perspective would say, yes, it's condemning that, but it's not condemning what you and I see in our world today. The second perspective would be this, is the affirming side would say that the historic Christian position at the end of the day has done undue harm to gay and lesbian people by creating shame and stigma. Uh, This is, um, uh, by the way, I'm gonna shoot straight with you here. I don't entirely disagree. And what I mean when I say that is I say, I often find those that hold the right doctrine hold the doctrine in the wrong way. And that is to say that the doctrine is not used to serve and love, it is used to beat people up. But that doesn't mean the doctrine is wrong. It means that it's been misused. This perspective would say something like this. The historic Christian perspective has made gay and lesbian people feel like nobodies and that it is creating shame and ultimately it leads to suicide and people who are harming themselves. Uh, Matthew Vine, who wrote a a book on this very topic from the affirming perspective, says this. Condemning same-sex relationships is harmful to LGBT people. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that good trees bear good fruit, but the church's rejection of same-sex relationships has caused tremendous needless suffering to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. You know, I pastored a church in Portland. I would imagine pastoring in Portland is a little bit different than pastoring in Roseburg. And one of the things that I had to learn very quickly was that as a person from the historic Christian perspective, one of the greatest ways that I could serve my gay and lesbian friends in the church was to be really upfront about what our church believed. 
Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it is so painful to be a gay or lesbian person and come to a church and lay your life down to serve for three or four years, only to find out after four years that there are boundaries to how they can serve in the church. We actually end up creating more harm by not being honest about where the church is at. I think that's part of the reason why I'm being invited to come today is so that we can have a more honest dialogue about this stuff and not dance around it because at the end of the day, we actually end up doing more harm to gay and lesbian people when we're not honest up front about the boundaries in the community. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So the affirming position would say, well, your perspective, the historic Christian perspective, harms gay and lesbian people. And the the third perspective of the affirming position is that same-sex attraction is inborn and unchosen. And again, for, for sake of str- not, st- I want to steel man my argument, not straw man the argument, which means I want to actually find ways that I can agree with those I disagree with rather than, than just uh, beat down the worst versions of it. This perspective right here, I, I have to tell you, it, I don't disagree with. My friend Greg Coles, uh, who is a uh, Christian writer, he's a celibate young man who has wrestled with same-sex attraction his entire life, was never abused as a child. He was never molested. He was never in any way, shape, or form put in a position where his sexuality was tinkered with. He has never had a sexual experience. And he would say from the age of his teenagers on, he had these desires that he never wanted, and they have been with him his entire life. I was 13 years old when I began to experience my own struggle with same-sex attraction. And in my case, it did have to do with some really painful, traumatic sexual experiences, but that is not the case for everybody. And the, the, the affirming position, I think, would actually be right on one perspective in this, and that is that for many people who wrestle with same-sex attraction, it is not something that they woke up and decided to have one day. And that for many people, they wake up every day and fight and struggle in the body that they find themselves in. The only problem is, is just because we are born with a desire does not mean that we are bound to have to follow it. And ultimately, I think the affirming position would say something like this. If you are born with a desire, then you are bound to have to live out that desire. And I want to say, isn't that what Jesus came to free us from? Didn't Jesus come to free us from having to feel like we were condemned to our desires? No. That's what the grace of Jesus is all about. Number four is, is it, is it, is it, is it would, the, the affirming position would say, well, conservatives on this topic are really convenient at ignoring other texts of the Bible. I wouldn't disagree. We are all selective in the texts that we, we listen to. Here's why I began with Amos. Our call is to the entire scripture and not just the parts that we like. That we read the Old Testament through what Jesus has to say. We do not get to selectively pick which parts of God we love and which parts we don't. If I'm going to stand up here and say that God calls every single person to a life of sexual holiness and righteousness, I also am called to, come to care for justice and the poor. I don't get to pick. But the affirming position, I think, that, I think on some level, it would say, yeah, you, you pick and choose which ones you want. Number five is the affirming position would say, well, the church is more and more and more accepting the affirming position, which is absolutely true in the West, but only in the West. <laughs> if you go to any other part of the world, the affirming position is not making inroads at all. This is a wildly European approach towards Christianity. Uh, one could say it is a, it's, it's a very European form of Christianity. 
But right now, the truth is that the United Methodists, for example, are splitting over this issue right now. And one side is going to the global church. Uh, I'm preaching at Asbury in two months, and I, this is the hottest debate right now, is that the United Methodists are splitting over this very issue. One side is going the affirming route, and one is not. And I think what we are learning is we are learning that this is not an issue where you can have disagreement in a movement. You need, you, it actually, you need some sense of unity around this. Um, it is an issue that you cannot simultaneously hold both positions uh, in, a, in a movement. And I think, there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. The affirming position would also say this, well, same-sex relationships are part of the natural order. And that it's a part of, when you look at the animal kingdom, there's same-sex relationships in the animal kingdom. And it actually turns out that's true. Uh, penguins, for example, uh, quite commonly known for being in same-sex sexual relationships. And so the affirming position would say, look at the penguins. Look at na- the natural order. Okay? I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to straw man my arguments here. I'm trying to steal me them. These would be the arguments. So how, how, would, the, okay, how would I respond? <laughs> how would we respond to these arguments? How would I respond to these arguments? Let me, as clear and crystal, give a, a response. Number one is I would say, categorically speaking, from Genesis to Revelation, the ancient Israel, the early church, all would declare with confidence that same sex outside, any form of sex outside of God's design for marriage is not God's design. And and that Scripture does not parse out just power dynamic relationships from other consensual. It declares all of them not God's design. And so we don't get to pick one or the other. Scripture is abundantly clear about these things. And we already wrestled with Romans 1, the the, the consensuality issue of the one another in Romans 1. Number two, I would say to the person who would say that the, the historic Christian perspective is harming gay and lesbian people, my response would be this. My response would simply be, the Bible's teaching on same-sex sexuality actually, at the end of the day, liberates people when it is taught lovingly and rightly, that it frees people. You know how I can say that? Because I'm a 42-year man, 42-year-old man who's standing up here, walking in freedom because of Scripture. And I do not say that to suggest that I don't have my day-to-day struggles. I say that to say, I am thankful to God I was discipled in a church that decided to hold faithfully to what God says. If you're going to say scripture is oppressive to gay and lesbian people, then you are calling my freedom oppression. Interesting studies, by the way, on LGBT LGBT people. 83% of LGBT people were raised in the church. More often than not, this is actually a church issue. I have some suspicions as to why that's a case that I don't have time to go into right now. But here's what's interesting. Of those who have walked away from the church over the issue of sexuality, only 3% claim to walk away from the church for theological reasons. And what that means is this. When gay and lesbian people walk away from the church, they're not doing it because of the teaching. They're doing it because there were Christians who were not thoughtful and loving and walked alongside them. Friends, I would invite you to this. Guard with your life the teaching and be so generous and loving. David Bennett, if you haven't read his book, A War of Loves, you have not lived yet. David Bennett was a gay activist in the UK 
and had a radical encounter with Jesus, and he now writes on how to help us understand sexuality on these topics. He wrote an incredible book called A War of Loves, in which he says this. It's the bad teaching of the Bible's teaching of sexuality, not the teaching itself that generates bad fruit. And what he's saying is he's saying it's not the teaching itself. The teaching is good and glorious and liberating. It's when it is applied in the wrong way that it hurts people greatly. I think Bennett is absolutely right. When we do not have kindness and mercy and compassion and loving kindness and long-suffering, when we apply stuff and we use the scripture as a sword rather than using scripture as a servant, that we end up doing our greatest harm. To say nothing of the fact, folks, that correlation is not the same as causation. And that is to say, just because somebody believes something and you've been hurt by that person doesn't mean that what they believed was wrong. You know how I can say that? Hitler was a vegetarian. Does that mean that vegetarianism is wrong? <laughs> Man, Roseburg is different than Portland. Oh, show. Wow. Just because somebody holds a doctrinal perspective and you've been hurt by that person doesn't mean the doctrine is wrong. It means the person was wrong. And so just, again, just because Hitler was a vegetarian doesn't mean vegetarianism is wrong. I think we are living at a moment in history where God is simultaneously asking us to relentlessly hold faithful to scripture and practice kindness. There's a a phrase by A.W. Tozer. He says, um, what we need in this moment is we need people who practice, um, uh, he calls it, uh, oh my gosh, it's called, um, oh, Tozer, come to me right now. Um, it, it'll come back to me. He has this phrase uh, where he says, um, ah, it'll come to me, Professor Brain. Um, so correlation is not causation. Correlation is not causation. And I, I think somebody would rightly say, well, aren't you just by, when you stand up there on the stage and you ask, uh, you ask us to believe this idea that God invites us to live in a certain way with our sexuality, aren't you just keeping people from being fulfilled and happy in marriages? Are you just, you're just keeping people from being fulfilled and happy. And my response would be this. The underlying promise, the underlying thing that you are saying when you ask that question is you are assuming the, th- the same thing that the evangelical church held up in the purity culture that said the only way you can be fulfilled is marriage. And I want to say marriage is not the point of following Jesus. Following Jesus is the point of following Jesus. And when you make marriage the goal, you're just making marriage the goal. Anybody who's married knows that being married doesn't fulfill you. I jokingly say, honestly, I I jokingly say when I'm with single people, and by the way, some of my dearest friends are single, uh, gay and lesbian people who are choosing willingly giving up their sexuality to follow Jesus. And I gotta tell you, they're the coolest people you'll ever meet. They're the coolest people you'll ever meet because they are willingly saying, God, I love you more than my own fulfillment. But I can't tell you how many times I've said to somebody, make them laugh out loud. All the single people wanna be married and a bunch of the married people really wanna be single again. (laughs) 
Marriage is not the goal. It is not the goal. And the assumption behind this question is the same thing evangelicals taught in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that is a complete heresy. Marriage is not fulfillment. It does not fulfill us. Following Jesus is the goal. That is the only goal. It's the only goal. Does telling people to crucify their sexual desires harm them? And one could say that when you say God is inviting us to lay our desires at the cross, you are just harming people. I think my response would be, we don't have an agreed upon definition of what harm is. And what I say is, (laughs) when Jesus says, love your enemies, doesn't that put you in harm's way? Yeah. Like loving your enemies is not a great piece of advice for keeping things safe. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he is putting you in some way, in harm's way. I'm not saying Jesus wants you to get hurt. I'm just saying this. When Jesus says, lay your life behind and come and follow me, pick up your cross, this is not an invitation to have a life where we get everything we want. It's an invitation to actually lay beside our wants and receive eternal life and life of God. I think the historic Christian position would agree. People who struggle and wrestle with same-sex attraction did not wake up and say they wanted it. You know, Jesus actually addresses this issue. It's absolutely brilliant. In John 9, do you remember the man born blind? The man born blind. And all these people come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Is this guy blind because his parents sinned or he sinned? Isn't it interesting? Jesus is put to the nature-nurture debate. Why is he this way? Is he because his parents sinned or he sinned? Because they assumed, they assumed because he had a struggle, it is a result of sin. What is Jesus's response? He is not wrestling with this. He is not blind because of sin. He is doing it because it will reveal the glory of God. Jesus rejects the nature-nurture debate. And he says, I'm not gonna tell you why he's blind. All I'm gonna tell you is this guy's in my hands. And he's gonna, he's gonna reveal the glory of God. I would invite you, church, get out of the business of thinking the nature-nurture debate that you can figure it out. You don't get to know why people wrestle with same-sex attraction. It is not in your purview. You are not paid enough to have the answer. But what you are called to do is you are called to help people find the glory of God in their life with whatever body God has put them in. Doesn't matter. Jesus sidesteps the whole thing. And I want to say, I'm going to stick up here for my friends who wrestle with desires in their body that they don't want. People like me and people in this room. This is not other people. Is temptation and wrestling with the desires that you don't want is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in the garden of, he was tempted in the garden of Gethsemane. He was tempted by not wanting to die on the cross. He was tempted in the desert by the devil. Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus ever sin? Was he tempted? Temptation is not a sin. To wrestle with desires that you do not want does not make you a sinner. It is what you do with those desires that matters. We have got to stop shaming people for their desires. Because for many of us, we can't control the desires we experience on a day-to-day level. 
What we need to do is not judge desires, invite people to put those desires on the cross with Jesus, which is hard work. But temptation is not a sin. If somebody says to you, I have wrestled with these desires since I was a teenager, I would encourage you, don't question what they've experienced because they're probably telling you the truth. Number four is scripture universally condemns all sexual sins and it doesn't pick and choose which ones we get to condemn. It has the same perspective on rape as it does on bestiality, as it does on pederasty. It says to all of it, this is not God's design. I'm a pa- friends, I work with pastors. There is, a, there is a pornography pandemic in the church right now among pastors. And I, I want to say, listen, I don't get to apply the text to just the things that are politically convenient to me. I need to look at the church and I need to help my pastor friends who are wrestling through really big struggles with pornography. I'm going to skip just a few things here. Number five, my response is, yes, somebody would say, the church is more and more and more going affirming. And I would say that is true in one part of the world. And that is pretty much in white America. And it is largely from the 1970s and on. If you go to any other part of the global church in Africa, in China, in Asia, in Indonesia, in South America, the church holds a traditionally historic Christian perspective. It is a very American thing to say, God, we've got this. And we're going to change things. Friends, the church has held faithfully to this tradition for 2,000 years. And I don't think now at our moment in history, because we have TikTok, we get to change it. Yeah. 2,000 years is a long time. Number six, that when you look at creation, the created order flourishes through sexual difference. It actually turns out that when God created the universe, he created it in such a way that sexual diversity is his design. He made it so that a man and a woman, two sexually different people, would come together and create life. There is nowhere in the natural order, there is nowhere in the natural order where flourishing and reproduction happens without that. And number, and by the way, if you're going to say, <laughs> just, just as a rhetorical pushback here, if you're going to make the penguin argument, then you better be willing to make the praying mantis argument, which is that female praying mantises actually end up eating their male counterpart after copulation. So I would, I would say the whole nature, look at nature, nature does it, it must be okay. If, you, if you're gonna apply that, just, just be consistent. Again, I'm not trying to make fun, but it, as, a, as, a, as a rhetorical argument, I think it's a pretty, pretty weak one. It's a pretty weak one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a second. Um, I, I am up here. I'm, I'm doing my darndest to make the case. I'm doing my darndest to make the case that we have a responsibility before, before God to remain faithful to what God has said. You know, I feel this, 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 this thing that I often feel with some of my students who will say something like this. By the way, some of you notice that I'm looking down and not looking at you. 
It's not a point of shame, but sometimes when I'm really caring about something, I can't look at your faces because you distract me with what I feel like I'm supposed to say. It's not about you. Don't take it personally. Does that make sense? Okay. Is, the, is these arguments that go something like this. They say, you know, what will the history books say about you guys and your perspective on sexuality? You know, the history books, they're going to write you guys out. You guys are the, you're, your beliefs, will, you're on the wrong side of the arc of history. Or something that goes like this. Your children, what will, you, what will your children say about you? And these are, have you ever had somebody use those sort of arguments? Those are very powerful rhetorical devices, aren't they? And they're basically, they're ways of saying, like, history will judge you. And, and I think that may be true. History may judge us. That may be true. And none of us will be in the history books. But history will judge us on some level. And, and I have an obligation as a Christian to remember, even when those, those comments are made, I need to remember, yes, history may judge me but history is not my final judge. And that my final judge is that I will give account to God someday for my life. That I will stand before God and I will need to give some level of accountability for what I did. And I gotta tell you, I wish the Bible said something differently about sexuality. It would make my life a lot easier. It would make my relationships a lot easier. It would make my social media posts a lot easier. It would make um, my job a lot easier. I wish the Bible didn't say what it did. But I don't get to pick what the Bible says. And there will be a day that I will give an account for holding faithfully to what Jesus has said and Scripture has said or making it say what I want. And I want to remind you why. Why guarding what Scripture has to say is so darn important at this moment in history. I've actually asked the people at the sound table to not put this screen up on the YouTube uh, uh, link because I have permission to share this, but I, I don't have permission to um, share it with the whole world. <laughs> I can share it with you, but not everybody. Um, and I may have shown this to you, um, uh, or I may have elucidated this or suggested I was going to show this to you, but I want to show this picture to you. This is uh, two Easter's ago. Uh, my pastor friend Isaac sent this photo to me. This is Easter. It's an Easter baptism service. And uh, in the back, do you see the woman in the back with the mask on in the back left? Um, that woman was in a same-sex marriage for 25 years. And she, um, a number of years ago, her and her partner had an encounter with Jesus at this church. And they both um, realized what God was calling them to. And they, and they knew that God was inviting them to confront um, what was in their marriage sin. She's standing in the back clapping. And she's clapping because there's a guy getting baptized. And in the middle is a guy who, for seven years in downtown Portland, uh, a man who lived as a trans woman for seven years. And in the middle of COVID, um, his life fell apart, um, and he decided to come home, and he went to church, and he encountered Jesus. And this is him getting baptized. And I share this photo to you. I share this photo to you 
Because those are two people that you're looking at who are experiencing freedom. And if you said, if you said the Bible is oppressive, it's backwards, it's stuck in the first century, I guess I want to say, tell that to those two people who are ascending from the waters of baptism free. I can't impress upon you enough, church, how important what God says matters to people who experience slavery. Guard what God has said. Because when you do, these kinds of people experience freedom. And those people matter to God. They matter to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he had in his heart and his mind every gay and lesbian trans person, he had them at the heart of the cross. And we are feeling torn at this moment in history to have to pick between relationships and truth. And I reject the narrative. I'm going to choose both. I'm going I'm going to choose to believe what God says and be so ferociously good at loving people. And church, I ask you to do the same. I'm done. I, I believe we're going to do some Q&R here. We've got about 30 minutes. So I want to, I really, I do, I mean it when I say I welcome your pushback. Um, that's the only way that I grow and learn is to, is to push back our questions or whatever. And if you totally, like, I just, I, I'm okay with whatever. I'm just glad there's no protesters here. I, I was sort of expecting somebody to come and hate on us tonight. And maybe you're here and you're about to do your thing. Um, <laughs> But I want to thank you for being quiet for the first hour and a half. So. Okay. Yeah. Questions, comments? Raise your hand if you got, yeah, right up, right up, go for it. So, so it's not what you said, but what I heard was because I'm conservative, I can't be compassionate. Say, say that again. I'm so sorry. I don't even like talking on this thing. Yeah, it is awkward. What I heard yeah. you say was, because I'm a conservative, I can't be compassionate. No, 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 no. Well, how did you hear, let me ask, let me push back. How did you hear me say that? Because we don't care about homeless or whatever that whole oh, 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 okay. What's your name? Jason. Jason. Can I ask you, Jason, before I respond, can I ask you to give me the benefit of the doubt that that is not what I meant? Like I said, it's what I heard. It's, it's not, not what you said. said. Thank you. I just want you to comment on it. Thank you, 100%. Here's what my comment was about, Jason, is that I constantly find in whatever room I am in that most of the people in any given room that I'm in feel as though they have to pick between various issues based on their political party. Let me give you a case in point. I'm in, in this weird moment where if you are somebody that, that, that is, for example, if you are pro-life and you believe that the baby in a womb is an actual life, it's not a fetus, it's a human. If that is you, 
Would you agree with me that more often than not in the political spectrum, that is a conservative issue? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. What if I also said that children in cages at the border matter to God as well? Will you, will you agree with me that that has been cast as a progressive issue for some? That, that the progressives are caring for uh, the born children and conservatives care only for the unborn. Jason, what I'm trying to do is to say, I don't get to pick which issue matters to God based on my partisan politics. If I am a Christian, I have to carry for all of it. And I would say, sadly, in some environments like Portland, that conservatives are cast as being people who are not compassionate which is a narrative I completely disagree with. But I am trying to tackle the assumption, by the way, you can be conservative and follow Jesus. Would you please? Would you please? I am at total peace with that. But I don't get to pick between caring for people in Roseburg and caring for people in Portland. And when I'm in Portland, guess what the conversation's about? It's about a whole other set of things that we're not talking about here. So the gospel, what does Paul say? For the Greeks, I'm a Greek. For others, I'm, for the Jew, I'm a Jew. I'm, I, I know my room pretty well. I'm with predominantly conservative folks from Roseburg. And the assumption, sadly, in some environments is that conservatives are not compassionate. And I think that that is ridiculous. So thank you for clarifying. Have I, have I responded? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was addressing assumptions rather than... Yeah. And I would, can I just say, Jason, back to you. If, if we are going to, if you, we, you are going to ask people to trust that conservatives can be compassionate, then give the benefit of the doubt to your progressive friend that you disagree with and be willing to see maybe they're trying to be as compassionate as they know how to be. You may disagree, but give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're trying. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's Jason, right? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, right here. AJ question, um, maybe a true and a false, Bye, guys. and then a question. Have a good day. Yeah, no, you're awesome. I hope it wasn't my fault. Okay. <laughs> so it sounds to me like if the Roman, the times back then, things got really bad, we can expect it to get more. Um, it could get harder here. Yeah, is what I'm. Yeah. Is what I'm hearing. Yeah. My question is this: Can you respond to? Uh, the individual that says, I want to do something, I want to do the kindness piece, but I don't exactly know how. Could you respond to them what that might look like, but also to the individual that says, I just don't want to? When you say do the kindness piece, what do you mean by that? Like, how do I use kindness to impact their lives for Christ? Uh, to come into a relationship with uh, Jesus. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> There, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation going on around um, th- th- this idea of lived experience and what what people mean by lived experience is in in general if you don't have an experience with something you don't get to speak to that issue and I want to say I don't like that I don't like that at all uh, because um, Jesus was never married he still gets to speak about marriage uh, Jesus you know Jesus never had sex but he still gets to talk about sex. This idea of, of kind of the almost idolatry of lived experience is the idea that you don't get to talk about something that 
you don't experience. So some would say that if you do not experience same-sex attraction, you don't get to talk about this stuff. And I would say, I don't like that. That's not good. But I would say this. I feel uncomfortable with you preaching and teaching this stuff without doing some hard work of actually getting somebody in your life whose life is going to be impacted by it. If you are somebody who says, God is right, I believe this book, it is true, and I stand by it, I would invite you, find that cousin, find that coworker, find that family member, find that son, find the, find the person in your neighborhood who lives outside the boundaries of what God designed and love them really well. And what you're going to find is that your theology gets put to the test a lot. And at the end of the day, if you're doing it right, you know what it does? It makes you pray a lot more. And it makes you get on your knees a lot more. And it makes you need to do more research and study and get into the Bible more. <clears throat> I have a number of gay and lesbian friends who make me pray a lot. And I need them because they force me to my knees in prayer. So I would say, I would say, if you don't wrestle with these issues, that's great. Praise God. You get to live that story. And I can't tell you how jealous I feel. If you don't experience it, praise God. Find somebody that does. Be in their life. I find that when Christians hold really strongly to scripture, but they don't know somebody that it impacts, their theology gets really mean. Just gets really mean. But when you hold faithfully to scripture and have to love somebody that's different than that, it just, it, it shaves off the edges or something like that. I don't know. I'm seeing some nods. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. That's my, I think that's my response. Go read David Bennett's book, A War of Loves. Talk about somebody who has paid a heavy price to follow Jesus. A gay activist who laid his sexuality down to follow Christ. If that story doesn't put, doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, I don't know what kind of human you are. Go read that story. It's mind-blowing. Thank you for the question. Uh, one of the common things I'm seeing in the affirmation churches is yes. the reimagining of Jesus and God as yes. love. Yes. One-dimensional, yes. without looking into any instances where they were intolerant yes. for the right reasons for other things. So they're one-dimensional, all love, and I feel good yeah. as opposed to the facts and the desire for God to want our best interests. Yep and our best outcome. Yes. And they just want to feel. Yeah, So they reimagine God and Jesus yep. too. That's what I'm seeing in the movement. Yep. Um, I don't disagree with what you just said. I think that um, some of, I have good friends who are uh, in, on the affirming side um, and some churches actually that used to be on the, on the historically Christian side that are now affirming that I still have relationships with. Um, and what, what's really difficult about those uh, those relationships is it's really hard to be in relationship with people that used to believe what you believe because you feel like they kind of know your cards. Like they know, they know your, we know what you're trying to do, something like that. I would agree that affirming churches can reshape God in their own image. But if any of us are about to say that conservative churches don't do the same, we're lying to ourselves. Conservatives have equally the capacity to do that. 
Um, and everybody can do it. This is not unique to the affirming side. But I do agree with you. I do agree with you. Um, that when Scott McKnight actually says this in one of his books, one of the greatest signs that you don't really get Jesus yet is when he agrees with everything that you think. (laughs) And any Christian that would be like, yeah, Jesus is like totally on my side. That's, I think the order's a little off here for any of us that do that, for any of us that do that. Yeah. It isn't, it isn't, two, two things. The Bible talks exclusively about love. I mean, in a world that says love, love is love, John says God is love. So what, what has actually happened is that we've taken God and replaced it with an attribute of God. And, and the minute we start worshiping an attribute of God, the minute you do justice without God, things get really funky. The minute you do love without God, things get really funky. Um, so yeah, not good, not good. That's why I'm up here risking my job and life and protests because this is stuff that we need to protect our witness of Jesus. Yeah, please. Yeah, I was watching a uh, panel the other day. One of the arguments that was made was using Romans 1 that the same sex was a corruption of, and it was important that the, the distinction was made between, I guess, for lack of a better term, normal lust or hetero lust as opposed oh. to same sex lust. And that that was, that distinction's important as far as um, it's a corruption of. Yes. And I guess, you know, when, when you look at it from the context of, you know, no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. Yeah. You know, at what point, is that distinction important or is lust outside of marriage, lust outside of marriage? Categorically speaking. Yes. Yeah. Is there value in that distinction? And is there value in saying that the, the homosexual path or those types of actions is a corruption? Yeah. As opposed to sex, say, just outside of a marriage that's still hetero, while it's, that's, I, I, again, for lack of a better term, nor, I'm not rephrasing what they said okay. very well, but okay. maybe okay. it gets the point across. Yeah, that's a great question. So this is called, at least theologically, it's called uh, gradation of sin or gradation of judgment, which is, are there certain sins that are more dangerous or more, uh, that are worse than others? So I'm going to bet, if I were to ask you this question, is all sin the same before God? Okay, most places that I'm in, the individual would say, yes, that some, all sins are the same. And to anybody that just said yes, I'm so sorry that you're wrong. <laughs> when Jesus is talking to Judas, or talking to Pontius Pilate, Jesus answered to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a? So let's, uh, what, what's, who's truer, you or Jesus? So, <laughs> so Jesus seems to make a pretty darn clear point that there are some sins that are what he calls greater sins. And that is true. However, I do not see in Paul's language or the New Testament a gradation of sexuality sins. Meaning, I think there's something going on here about Judas and what Judas is doing and what, what uh, Judas has done selling Jesus and Pontius Pilate. That's clear here. I don't necessarily find a compelling argument on, on a New Testament level that some... Paul's whole thing about sin, sexual sin is that it's you sinning against your own body. 
So, so when you, sexual sin, it doesn't matter if it's pornography, if it is adultery, if it is a same-sex sexual encounter, it is you know, rampant you know, hookups on your, your Tinder site, like whatever it may be, that you, you are sinning against your own body. And I don't see Paul, and I'm willing to be challenged on this, but I don't see Paul making a gradation of sexual sin. I see him saying it is all categorically very dangerous. You are sinning against your own body in the temple of the Lord. You can respond, please, please, please. Oh my gosh, would you please? That not that called fellowship? That's called koinonia. I mean, the, the, let me just tell you, church, when you have, when you have a same-sex attracted person come to your church who is willingly giving up their sexuality to follow Jesus out of obedience to Christ, if that person is made to feel like any less of a follower of Jesus than the guy or the woman in the church that struggles with pornography or any other sexual sin, then we are failing to cultivate a healthy church culture. It should be a normative experience here that the straight person who struggles with lust can walk hand in hand with the same sex attracted person who is willingly following Jesus. Both are being obedient to the cross of Christ. And they should walk together hand in hand and encourage each other and be in each other's lives. Absolutely. Wonderful question. Right here, please. Uh, have you had anyone come to you that was trans and uh, made the argument that, well, I'm actually not in a same-sex relationship because I'm actually, uh, you know, a woman when they're actually a yes. man? Uh, and how have you approached that, talking to that person? Yeah. So um, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to be dodgy here um, on the gender conversation because sex and gender are two different conversations. Um, not, they're, they overlap, but they are different conversations. Gender more has to do with one's, um, the, the way one perceives themselves in a social environment. So a person that says, I've, I feel or sense that I am a woman when I'm a man or something. When, whereas sex is, um, is, is, is the body, it's the DNA, it's the genetics. Uh, I've heard people say it's the difference between hardware and software. And one is hardware, one is software. Have I ever had a trans person come to me and say, I am trans, but I am in a, uh, an opposite relationship, an opposite sex relationship? Um, I, if I'm candid, that's never happened to me. And so I can't speak with authority on that topic. But what I can do is say, I know the book that deals with it. So uh, uh, my friend Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Embodied, Embodied, and I think he has a whole chapter on that. So rather than me butchering the conversation, let me be integrous and not. Preston Sprinkle Embodied. I think you'll find what you're looking for in there. Right next to him, a group critique, or a group comment. Yeah, go for it. I think of in the 80s, um, the church's behavior during the AIDS crisis, you know, trying to use, I think it was Romans or one yeah. of the scriptures you shared saying, saying, well, it's God's punishment on, on the gay, gay, gay people. And then I also think of in our community here in Roseburg, we have a community of Christians who 
quite actively hold signs, you know, yep. condemning yes. people who have abortions and people who Yes, who I saw are them today. The LGBT, yeah, they were out in force today. Yes. But my question is, as a Christian, if someone is in the world and not trying to be a Christian... Should we be trying to condemn these people for not behaving as Christ wants them to behave yes. to be a Christian? Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Yes. On, on also, I, I feel we should be treating people with empathy instead of with anger mm. and hatred. If that makes sense. I find going to uh, the prophetic exilic text in the Old Testament to be really instructive on this because when you look at the exiles, when Israel goes to Babylon, um, basically you have all these sections. Jeremiah's got these, these huge sections, Ezekiel. What do you do in Babylon? What do you, you're now in exile. You are no longer in Jerusalem. You don't have the temple down the street. You don't get to go worship there. So what do you do? And I find it, uh, the, the commandments around exilic living are really interesting. So for example, Daniel is an exilic book. And Daniel's whole thing is Daniel just eats differently. He doesn't eat the king's food. And it's noted in, Genesis, in, in Daniel 1, he just eats differently. Um, he even works, it's crazy, he works for Babylon. He's employed by Babylon. His W-2 says Babylon, <laughs> right? What does Jeremiah say to do? Jeremiah says, you guys are in exile. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna plant some gardens. You're going to build some houses, and I want you to have some kids. These are exilic commands. I'm struck. Go find me one exilic prophet who says, go to Babylon and hold Babylon accountable to what I'm telling you to do. He never invites Israel to hold Babylon to account for what God is calling them to do. We, I don't know where this, this notion came into mind, where we started thinking Babylonians were going to act like people that worship Yahweh. And Babylon does not care about Yahweh. That's not their job. Our job is to follow Yahweh. Jesus, King Jesus. And I'll tell you what, here's why this is going to work. Here's why this is going to work. Because things are going to start getting even way worse than they are now. If you think it's bad now, this is like first base. It, it is going to get, it is going to get, it, it is, God bless you. It is going to get harder and harder and harder. Babylon only gets darker because Babylon doesn't have any breaks. It can only keep going. And I'm going to tell you what, don't you dare spend your time judging Babylon. Spend your time being the people of God. Because here's what's going to happen. Babylon, when it all starts crumbling, they're going to see the light of God in this place. You wouldn't, you won't be able to keep them away. But you do not cast out the darkness by critiquing it. You cast out the darkness by holding out the light. Yep. So no, don't hold Babylon to your, your calling. You follow Jesus. Yep. Yeah. I think we have time for one more, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe two more, please. please. Um, hey, good to see you again. Yeah, the big lady. Yes, I, I won't forget. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is kind of a smoke bomb in the beehive, but oh. it says in Hebrews yes. that Jesus was tempted in every way yes. as we are. Yes. Add that up. Yes. yes. And it probably wasn't on the cross because most of the temptations that I've had in my life 
happen before the age of 10. The really bad ones. Oh, okay. Okay. Just, just saying. Yeah. So this would include possibly same-sex attraction. Yes. You know, it, it, it is a compelling... Thank you for having the guts to ask that question. Uh, and it took guts to ask that. Uh, because, you know, for in many people to draw those conclusions, like Jesus would never, ever struggle with that. And I, I don't get to put myself in Jesus' shoes and know what he experienced. I know this. I know that I went through puberty. And when I preach to middle schoolers, one of my favorite texts to preach on is Luke chapter two, when Jesus is a teenager. It's the only story that we have of Jesus' teenagers. And it's a really funny story. He gets lost in the temple for three days and his parents come and find him. It's the only teenage story we have. And by the way, not the only time Jesus will be lost for three days, if you know what I mean. Okay. Classic teenage story. When I'm preaching to junior hires, one of my favorite things to talk about is how awesome is it that you worship a God that went through puberty? And you're like, that's heresy. Actually, to say he wasn't a human is heresy. He was a full human, which means Jesus experienced pretty similar things that I experienced when I was 13 years old. And I can tell you, it was some funky, funky seasons of time. <laughs> now, Jesus responds to temptation a little differently than I do. Praise the Lord. As in, he never sins. But if Hebrews is accurate, and you are appropriately handing that to us, if that is accurate, that Jesus experienced all temptations known common to man, common to man. And there's a lot of debate what that means, what common to man means, what, what that means. But if it is accurate that Jesus experienced the fullness of human temptation and walked through it in his effort at, and his action of conquering the devil, I gotta tell you, if you're a same-sex attracted person, it is really comforting to know that you've got a God who has walked through all temptation and shown us the way to victory. I am not gonna say Jesus experienced same-sex attraction because I don't know, I don't know. But I know that every human being who has wrestled with those desires finds in Jesus a God who knows how to walk through that stuff. And praise God, we have a leader. We have a leader who we can faithfully follow. One more person. I'm gonna take the last one. I'm gonna take the last one. Okay. Okay. Are you okay? Come chat with me afterwards. I saw your hand up. I saw that hand. I saw that hand. So you mentioned, AJ, a little bit on the Levitical passage in 18, 19, and yes. 20, and yep. how Christians tend to pick and choose. And so we'll go get a tattoo and we'll eat a cheeseburger, but yeah. we'll also say, you know, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hang on to those, those sexual, um, legal, uh, Codes or whatever. Uh, yeah, codes, yeah. 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 And so can you give us just a quick rundown on, um, I know you, you mentioned the ones that are abrogated in the New Testament, but can you just, can you talk a little bit more about how we, how we suss that out? Hmm. Is that, I thought that would did, be an easy did, one. Did I'm I, sorry. Well, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I can say what I said, because what I said, I, I think um, I, I, I can, bears repeating, is that when we read the Old Testament, um, it is critical that we read the Old Testament. Through, you and I were talking about this at lunch, actually, that there's this weird um, kind of new thing. It's not new. It's actually ancient of Christians who are saying, let's unhitch from the Old Testament, that we no longer need the Old Testament. Um, uh, in the early church, there was a whole movement 
uh, of a guy uh, named Marcion who argued, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We just need uh, the gospels and the words of Jesus. And the early church appropriately called him a heretic. Uh, This was settled. It was settled within 400 years of the church. You cannot have the story of Jesus without the story that leads up to Jesus. You cannot have that story and and think that the rest of it makes sense. So Jesus becomes, there's a famous famous statement that Jesus reveals the Old Testament and he's hidden. Jesus is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. That he is the interpretive key to help us understand what God's intent was in the entirety of the Old Testament. This is why, great, this, thank you, thank you for bringing this up. Do you remember? I just had to get you going, man, just wind yeah, you up. Yeah, do you remember when Jesus, uh, in John's gospel, when Jesus, uh, the woman caught in adultery comes to Jesus. When she comes to Jesus, by the way, the phrase, she was caught in adultery, she was probably naked. She had probably been dragged from the physical act of something and put in front of Jesus. The woman caught in adultery. And what does Jesus do? Well, by the way, what does the Old Testament say you do with women that are caught in adultery? You stone them. <laughs> You're going, do, are, is that part of Jesus's ministry in the church now? Are we, do, are we doing this? So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus have the woman stoned? He stands next to her. And then he looks at the Pharisees who are standing right there. And he says, the first, the the, the one without sin can be the first to cast the stone. When you go back to Deuteronomy, who had to be in the room in order for the woman to have to pay the price of death? You are not, in Deuteronomy, you are not allowed to do any punishment in Deuteronomy unless the offending man was brought as well. And Jesus is reading through their heart. They are using and weaponizing a woman's sin to make a point. It is not the story of the sinful woman. It is the story of the hypocritical men. And what Jesus in that moment is doing is he is taking a whole tradition of Old Testament law and he is giving it a heartbeat. And the heartbeat is this. The heartbeat is that God stands with that woman in her brokenness and he loves her. And in a world where women are often shamed and put in their place for men's sins, he will have none of it. He puts a heart on the law. That's why you have Jesus. You cannot understand the law without the heart. And Jesus is the heart of the law. How that matters for us is we have to learn to read backwards. And that is that we read everything in the Old Testament through what Jesus did. He is the interpretive key and we follow Jesus who is Yahweh in human flesh. I think that's what you were getting at. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Boy, oh boy, do we need the Old Testament. Boy, oh boy, do we need the Old Testament. 
Well, when the famous Christian pastor came out with his book a few years back on kind of reiterating that same old argument from 1,600 years ago that we should unhitch ourselves from the New Testament, what struck me is if, if we don't, uh, from the Old Testament rather, if we don't have the Old Testament, first comes law, then comes gospel. If I don't know uh, yeah. what laws I'm breaking, then how yeah. can I repent from that which I don't know I'm repenting uh, of? Uh, and, uh, uh. and it just seemed like such yes. an... Um, well, it just seemed to me that the church fathers and mothers 1,600 years ago got it right. Yes. And, uh, and just because a famous pastor says something doesn't yes. mean we should follow it. Yes. And so um, yes. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful that we kind of we worked through that as well. Yes. But thank you so much uh, for, for being here once again, AJ, and absolutely uh, breaking down some of the most difficult passages once again for us and helping us to, to really apply the scriptures, and not just have the right doctrine, but have the right heart. And, and we've got to have, we've got to have both. Yes. We've got to have both. It's, it's often been said, and I've said this before, church, that um, it's been said that uh, if you have uh, orthodoxy, which is right belief, you'll have orthopraxy, which right is belief. right behavior. Yeah. So the idea is right belief equals right behavior, but that's not entirely true. I think it, it's true to a degree if orthocardia is present, the right heart is yes, present. And, yes. you're, and you're teaching us that and yes. you're conveying that. So thank yes. you so much, my friend. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's absolutely exceptional yeah. teaching. And church, can we just give AJ yeah. one more round of applause? Thank you. One more time. Uh, when I come together, uh, when we come together for our next session in a couple months, um, that section is going to be on the practical side. So how do you walk with people? How do you love your kids? How do you love your grandkids? What do you do when your grandkid, if they come out of the closet, what do you do when one of your kids is wrestling with you know, gender pronouns and these sorts of things? We're gonna get really practical in our next session. Um, but when I come, and I told Billy this, when I come uh, next, I'm gonna actually bring a one-page um, resource document for you of books, articles, and podcasts that you must listen to. Uh, to, to be able to have this conversation faithfully. But I'll bring that next time. I didn't know how far we were going to get today. But I'll bring that next time. We will print them out for all of you, um, and you, you can use those. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we do have to dismiss. I'm yep. going to just say a quick prayer please, please. Uh, on please. behalf of everyone uh, and what we've learned tonight. So, Lord, we thank you so much for uh, giving us your holy word to help us uh, <laughs> to, to work through some of the just the fog of our culture and our modern times. I thank you, Lord, that you uh, have given us uh, your son, Jesus. Yes, God. And that your, your son, Jesus, shows us the way in which we can live ourselves in a way that is in, in alignment with you and we can love our neighbor. Yes, and I'm God. praying, Lord, that you would help us to fiercely love your scriptures and love our neighbor. And Lord, help us, give us the grace to do that. Lord, thank you so much for AJ and his ministry here to our church. We pray for blessing to be upon he and his yes, family. Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every person here to walk this out, to live this out in a way that brings honor and glory to you, Lord. So, Lord, we just thank you and, and just so grateful for this time. And everyone in the room said a hearty amen. Amen. amen.